Now we're coming into 2024 and uh, I was thinking, well, we, we ought to uh, do a bit of a, um, a survey of uh, how we're moving and uh, in what direction we ought to be going and, and so on personally and corporately. Um, and I was thinking of the, the um, reminiscing by the Apostle Paul who was able to say that in, in Philippians 3 about forgetting the things that were behind and pressing forward and so on. He was going to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. When he says forgetting things that are behind, he was, he was saying, in effect, um, let's not dwell on past um, failures on our part. There, there are plenty of those not to congratulate ourselves if we see something as having been um, done okay because as we've been reminded this morning, we can do nothing except by the enabling of the Son of God. If there's anything achieved, it's his doing. But we do need to be focusing and pressing on. And I thought, well, perhaps we should um, go back to very first principles here Um, as far as individual Christian living and as far as church life is concerned. Um, And find out and be prepared to make some comparisons between what we are as individual Christians, what we are as a local church and what the Bible portrays to us as um, the norm, if we could call it that, for, in fact, that's what um, Watchman Nee did call it, didn't it, in that um, lovely book of his, The Normal Christian Life. What's it look like and what should we be aiming for? <clears throat> so I want us to read um, a couple of passages from the uh, early part of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, from chapter 1 and chapter 2, and um, then to consider some of the um, factors that are common and should be common across the centuries. Obviously, as we go through that passage, there are things that did not continue on past the apostolic age, but there's basic teaching, there's basic principles of behaviour that we do need uh, to take notice of. Well, let's just read those some verses, please, from Acts chapter 1, reading from verse 9. This is um, speaking about where the Lord Jesus is taken up from them. And this is really the beginning of the church age down here um, without the Lord Jesus being present. Verse 9, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot 
and Judas the son of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Now this is the background to what is about to transpire in the church age. What is going to happen is that these people are now urged to get on with the job that the Lord Jesus has entrusted to them. You see that, the word of the angel? Here they were gazing up. Well, they might. I mean, imagine us being there. We would have been gazing up too to uh, see the Lord Jesus being taken up. But the angel came immediately and said, um, what are you, why are you gazing up into heaven? The Lord Jesus has gone, yes, but, but now... It's time to get on with things. He's going to be coming back again. There's a limited period of time in which we have opportunity to witness a good confession of Christ down here below. And so they, there's a, a pattern immediately starts to emerge here. They returned to Jerusalem from where they were and when they'd entered they went into the upper room where they were staying, the whole group of them are mentioned, they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women folk who are mentioned there as well. So what we see for a start here, that they were now a praying community in fellowship with one another in seeking the Lord and his way forward. We'll move over quickly then, without going through the rest of chapter 1, to verse two, chapter 2 and the first four verses of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. I don't know if that was the same place that's mentioned in uh, chapter 1. But anyway, they were all together with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Those first four verses where the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ that when he has gone, the Holy Spirit would be given. They were told to wait in Jerusalem until that happened, not to go on in their own strength, not to be planning and executing um, programs of their own design. They were exhorted to wait in Jerusalem until this occurred. Now that great event has taken place. And we'll turn over to chapter, the, cha verse 36 in the same chapter as things develop. This is now going forward to the point where Peter, a man who has now been filled with the Spirit of God, this is the man who was unable to even confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ during our Saviour's trial. This is a man who had failed in many ways, so we can think in terms of, of the Apostles' later exhortation, forgetting those things which are behind. Now Peter is a man who's standing before a multitude of people and preaching the word of God. Verse 36, he's already preached much about our Lord and Saviour. Men of Israel, hear these words, he says at verse 22. Now we're continuing on. Therefore, 
let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptised, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favour with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So I wanted us to this morning just think in a pretty uh, much an overview uh, without going into great detail about any of these wonderful steps that were being undertaken in the early church to have a look at New Testament Christianity as it was emerging and as it intended for the church in all the ages. First of all, we'll try and find out some of the processes that are involved here, the process of becoming a Christian and the process of going on as a Christian. And it's worth noting, brothers and sisters, that in our day when easy believism is so much the case that we need to see that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the message of his church is um, is immediately set out clearly by the apostle. He pointed out that they how they were sinners. He pointed out what their attitude towards the Lord Jesus nationally had been and then his answer to their question, what must they do, was to repent. So we need to face that matter of dealing with the issue of sin before we enter into genuine Christian life. The, look, we can, people can be brought into a very nice and a very helpful and a very warm social relationship in a group of, of uh, people but the essence of the gospel is that we are those who are alienated from God by our wicked works naturally and we need to be those who are brought under conviction of sin that without the, re- the matter of our sin being dealt with we are under the judgment of God. Now that was a very clear message 
please read the words of the apostle through in that wonderful sermon. But he was pointing out that their relationship to Christ has been one of rejection, that they were doing th- going to do things their way, and that had to be repented of. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And that is the result of a faithful ministry of the word of God used by the Holy Spirit of God to bring people to that point. The instrument, of course, of that conviction was the word of God, the the preaching of that word faithfully, and the work of our Lord the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. That's exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ had indicated before he left this earth, that the Holy Spirit, when he come, he will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. John 16, 8 and 9, where he, the Lord Jesus himself makes that clear. And so when the Holy Spirit of God anoints the ministry of the word of God through his servants, then that a person is brought to that point. And I think we need to be clear and loving um, as well as faithful about that when um, people young or old show interest in the things of God and they're being exercised about their need to be right with God. We have to have that matter dealt with. And uh, the scriptures are very clear that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's very clear that the wages of sin is death, that we are those who, without God's gracious intervention, would be condemned already. So that that first point I'd like to make is about the matter of um, conviction and repentance towards God. And the second point that Peter makes here is that of conversion of life, change in our lives, transformation that the Lord brings about. Not a little bit of um, improving by trying harder and that sort of thing. Of course we've got a responsibility to live as we ought before him, but it's a matter of our lives being changed inwardly. When the Lord um, takes possession of our lives, the Holy Spirit actually indwells us and his life is lived out. So Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the words that he, he uses are repentance, certainly, which is a change of mind or an intellectual revolution. Our dear Miss Ruth White used to speak about a 180-degree turn, um, and uh, I was reading an illustration of it during the week from one author, and he spoke about a soldier who was demonstrating um, what had happened in his life to his um, commanding officer who asked what had happened, and uh, he marched in one direction and then did an an about turn. What do you call that? Um, I think you might call it an about turn. Anyway, the instruction that the... uh, the uh, commander would normally give. He did that and and said to his commander, that's what's happened in my life. A change in direction where our lives actually bear testimony to what the Lord has done. 
then there's the matter of not only repentance but remission of sin. And this was brought home to us this morning about the impact, the effect of the precious blood of Christ when we are repentant towards God. That the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, then cleanses us from all our sin. Remission of sins. This comes through our personal faith in the Lord Jesus. And then our baptism becomes an outward and visible sign of that change that has taken place. And simultaneously with these things is what um, we might say regeneration or the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Nobody can be converted without the work of the Spirit of God within them. Um, We read, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. That's Romans chapter 8 verse 9, wonderful chapter in its own right. But to take that very much to heart, that when we are brought to Christ, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence within us. And if that has not taken place, there might be some psychological changes due to stuff we do or what people tell us. But the transformation is a work of the Spirit of God and it's done because of repentance to him and saving faith in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got that that confession of sin, that conversion of life, and then the confession of faith becomes a norm for Christian experience. Those who gladly received his word were baptised, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, in verse 41. Now, that would have been a, a major step for many of those Jewish people when they were baptised into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They were confessing that their faith and trust was in this great triune God and the finished work of his beloved Son. For them and for us, it involves obedience to, to the Son of God, obedience to the Word of God, And we need to make that clear. It was so interesting to... um, Only during the week we got a message from um, Paul and Debbie Howells um, in the Philippines, people who we've prayed for for and supported for a long period of time from here. And they were mentioning how they had just completed... uh, There'd been a a massive um, inflow of people into the church, of conversions, and they had... Something like a hundred people were baptised at one time. And as this was happening, some young ladies came along and said, we've heard part of your ministry elsewhere and we want to um, confess the Lord Jesus as our saviour too. And um, so some of the senior ladies of the congregation took these young women aside, satisfied themselves that they were truly born-again people And so the hundred odd were added to by another few who had just come to know the Saviour. A perfectly legitimate move. The sort of thing that happened on this day. Those people, the transformation was such, the desire for witnessing a good confession publicly was such and they, they went ahead 
and uh, were baptised. <clears throat> well, Jesus not only commissioned his disciples to baptise all the nations, as in the Great Commission of, of uh, Matthew 28, but he actually set the example for that um, in himself. He had no sins to repent of, but he demonstrated his identification with the death and burial and resurrection that he was about to or going to accomplish by obeying the will of the Father. He said in Matthew 3.15, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. So he declared publicly to heaven and to earth and to whoever um, by his baptism um, that his he was the one who was going to bear their sins and carried their sorrows. <clears throat> now, with that obedience to the word of God and, the, and compliance with the Great Commission, there was also um, a further work done, and that was their allegiance to the church their committing of themselves to the church. Did you notice that? About 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but um, I've got this on the authority of a Greek scholar. That word added means to place forward, I'm quoting now, just as one brick is laid upon another. Some have suggested that it symbolises the extending of the hand of fellowship. From that moment on, these 3,000 were fully constituted members of the church in Jerusalem. And then we'll see shortly, they continued on from that point. Now, this is all very immediate um, uh, set of principles that we see coming into effect in that first day of the life of the church after the Spirit of God came upon the, the, those who were gathered and others were listening to and reacting to the word of God, we see that now they're being merged together, built together. And uh, the apostle develops this beautifully in other, other New Testament scriptures where we are um, placed together in the way that stones in a building are shaped and placed together. They're not all the same, um, but they are, they are inter digitating one with the other to give a, a beautiful entity that is indwelt by the Lord himself. So there we have um, a little bit about the processes that were involved in the commencement of a congregation of those who were truly the Lord. Now there's also, we can discern, if we haven't got much time to do it, but there's a pattern uh, that we can find here um, in the development of church life. That, and we'll just mention the four things anyway, if not able to deal with them each. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. We've had some ministry about this in recent times. And uh, I don't think any of us who were present will ever forget the um, ministry that, of um, Mr Arnold speaking about the one of fellowship um, and the significance of that in the life of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fellowship of believers, the interrelatedness 
of every believer with every other believer. The place, the unique place that each believer has in the church of God. The place that, uh, the sort of ministry that one exercises that another can't. One is gifted for and another is gifted in a different way. And we see them progressing as as a church and doing this steadfastly. The words are wonderfully important that we have here. They continued steadfastly in those four blessings. Um, They, of course, when it came to teaching, they were reliant on the the ministry of the apostles um, at that stage. They didn't have any written Bible, any written New Testaments. They would have had perhaps access to Old Testament scriptures, some of them. But um, they didn't have the blessing and the privileges that we have of a complete canon of scripture from beginning to end. Um, And I think that um, places upon each of us as a believer within a local church a responsibility for our own growing in grace. Yes, there's a responsibility on those who minister the word publicly and so on, but we have the opportunity of doing that um, blessedly in our own homes and in our own time. But the, the, the first of these four elements in which they continued was the, the word of God. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And we need to be, um, as a church, so jealous and zealous about um, teaching and preaching and living the word of God um, and not the ideas um, that um, people like to add into uh, supposed Christianity. So, yes, there is this pattern that starts to emerge, the presentation of the Holy Scriptures um, and the, um, the congregation of the saints, we might call it, or the fellowship of the saints, the second and very important aspect of it. And that fellow, word fellowship is a very precious one. It's used repeatedly for participation in living, loving, giving and serving in the church. Fellowship is involved in all those aspects of church life. And um, we need to, and perhaps we'll at one stage have an opportunity for looking at that in more detail. The celebration of the Lord's Supper was also there, the Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship. I might say before getting off that word fellowship that it was, it's very important in the um, letter, in the epistle to the Philippians where um, Paul speaks about the fellowship of the gospel. The gospel is not presented as um, just by this person or that person or that particular ministry. It's the presentation of the gospel is done through his church, through each one exercising the particular role and gifting that the Lord has given to them. Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread. Um, this, this matter of remembering our Lord Jesus around the table is so precious. I know that as matters of sort of practicality and convenience, it can, it can be um, 
made less frequent and some people would re, would um, justify that by saying that we can we can um, become overly familiar with it well I suppose that's a danger of, of our human nature but these people were in they were steadfastly following these four steps and one of those four was to remember our Lord Jesus till he come and in the way in which he had asked us to remember him. Um, we've often said that there are many ways that they could have remembered our Saviour. Well, no, no doubt many ways they did remember him, the miracles he did, the words that he spoke that were incomparable words. But this is what he instituted, that do this in remembrance of me and to do it until he come. And the fourth one, and we'll have to finish with this without going on to what the product of church life might be, but the fourth of these is the prayer meeting. One, one author has called it the adoration of the Saviour. Um, I'll read you his paragraph. Archbishop Trench points out that of the several words that are used for prayer, Luke uses the most exclusive and inclusive one in our text. It is exclusive because it is used of prayer to God alone, but it is inclusive in that it embraces all the exercises and disciplines of a worshipping heart. It means adoration, confession, petition and thanksgiving. For practical purposes, the emphasis here is on the prayer meeting, which is the spiritual barometer of every church. And he goes on, indeed, the church marches on its knees. For this very reason, this service demands not only the attention, but also the attendance of everyone who is a member of a local church. Well, I know that uh, that's easier said than done. There are some people who are not able to get... But the point is made here about the significance of the prayer life of the church. Did you notice where they were when all this before all this started? When the Lord Jesus went, they went to the up the room where they were gathered for prayer. The it's the natural it's the natural breath of a Christian. It's the natural bent of a Christian to be with praying and worshipping brothers and sisters. And that of the four things that they continued steadfastly in, that one is definitely included. The Apostles' Doctrine, yes, God help us in relation to teaching the Word of God and in living the Word of God. We heard only a few weeks ago from that brother from one of the missionary societies how he came to faith in Christ by watching a man go about his everyday work and knowing that this man was a Christian. The witness there, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. I believe that the Lord would have us, brothers and sisters, amongst those who zealously and persistently um, follow this pattern that we have set for right in that early stage of the Christian church and to find out how that applies to us personally, what impact it has for our individual lives 
but it's, it's a big responsibility for us too as a church to ensure that we seek to follow through. Now, there's no time to do it, but I'd love to talk about some of the products of that that are seen here and perhaps by God's grace in the not-too-distant future we might be able to look at those. But the outcome of all of this was a vital, um, an active, a church that had was um, in favour with people, with the community, that was caring for each other, meeting the needs of, of the uh, members of the congregation, spirit, soul and body. Um, it's a very beautiful uh, study to just go forward in, that, in the book of Acts there. Well, that, actually, in the passage that we read, um, we've only just scratched on the surface. But the Lord help us as we enter into uh, this year that we might reassess where we are personally and that those of us who have responsibility to do so, to reassess where we are as a local church and how we make um, move forward and to do so steadfastly. No, no sort of hit and miss or on today and off tomorrow, but there's a steadfastness that the Lord is looking for. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We acknowledge readily that as we see these, um, these principles outlined so uh, graphically for us in your word, uh, we would have to say that we have been unprofitable servants. But we do seek your help. We do seek that enabling from above. We do seek that which only comes from you so that there will be individual lives that are being lived out in accordance with your plan and that there will be a corporate expression of our Lord Jesus Christ that will bring others to know him, that will bring increase to the church and encouragement to those and ministry to those who are in need. So help us, we pray, and take us forward today in the remainder of this Lord's Day that like your servant, John of old, we might be found in the Spirit on this Lord's day. Unto him, then, who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, now and forever. Amen.